0: Hey, it's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. It's been almost exactly a year since we celebrated the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. On this podcast last December, we spoke with Helen Branswell about last mile vaccine challenges, under the impression that we could cautiously see the light at the end of the pandemic tunnel. And now here we are today scrambling for boosters, worried about additional restrictions. To gain insights into the very latest science and policy responses, today I'm joined by Kai KuferSchmidt, contributing correspondent for Science Magazine based in Berlin, Germany. Kai writes about infectious diseases, having received a diploma in molecular biomedicine from the University of Bonn, Germany. If you listen to any WHO briefing on the pandemic, you will hear Kai being called upon to ask a probing question. But for this episode, I got to ask the questions. Should we feel guilty about receiving a third dose of vaccine? Is trying to evade COVID-19 infection futile? What are the implications of the Omicron variant to the efficacy of therapeutics? It's hard to know all the answers. Fortunately, Kai is on the scene to help us through the morass of data, policy choices, and changing assumptions. Well, thank you for joining me, Kai, and welcome to At Risk.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: So are we all going to get infected with COVID-19? Is that what the advent of Omicron means for us?
1: It's. Um, I think that's at least one very likely possibility at the moment. I mean, in some ways, if we go all the way back, that's always been a likely possibility, right? Um, very early on in the pandemic, some researchers pointed out that the most likely end game would be that this virus becomes endemic and circulates um, just like other coronaviruses do in winter. And, you know, we get infected with those every year, some of us, and, and get a mild cold, and that's it so what we're living through at the moment of course is this this pandemic phase that some of these viruses might also have caused when they first entered um, you know human populations and so so i think you know even before omicron that was a possibility i think the big fear with omicron at the moment is that because of its characteristics the way that it seems to evade immunity and and apparently also its its higher transmissibility though there's some questions about that still But that means that we are going to get a lot of people infected in a very short time. So, you know, a while back, the German health minister said that at the end of this winter, everyone would either be vaccinated, recovered or have died. And I think at the time that wasn't really true. But I think with Omicron now, we are much closer to that reality because it just spreads so fast. It's going to use a lot of vaccinated people also um, to transmit and and it's going to reach a lot of the people that are still unprotected and and of course that's going to mean a huge crunch for the health system
0: now this may seem like an obvious question but just to make sure we fully explore it potentially everyone getting the virus doesn't mean resistance is futile though
1: no i think and i think one of the biggest problems i've had in the last 2 years in this pandemic in terms of the communications has just been that, you know, maybe it's our media system or maybe it's just the way that we work as humans, but we're constantly drawn to these kind of dichotomies, to these black and white pictures. And of course, that's that's not at all um, helpful in this pandemic. So there is a lot of things we can do. I, the fact that we cannot get rid of this virus probably ever, you know, it's just in so many animals and humans at this point. Doesn't mean that we have to live with whatever it does in terms of uh, disease and death. We have averted a lot of deaths by developing vaccines very fast by vaccinating a lot of people on this planet very fast. Not equitably, um, which is a huge problem, but certainly a lot of lives have been saved. And you know, this was always in the first year of the pandemic. This was always an argument when people were saying, "Well, you know, what's the point of just you know delaying people's infections or people's deaths and that was never the case you know sometimes a death delayed is a death averted and that's certainly what we've seen um, in this pandemic and so with Omicron again um, I mean you also have to realize that how many people go into ICUs at any given moment decides how well the, the the health system can cope with anything else that's normally happening so you get this kind of you know, added mortality at some point because the health systems just can't cope. And then a lot of other people are also dying, not just of the COVID-19, but of other things. So that's also something that alone, even if it was the same amount of, of deaths we would be talking about, just stretching them out over time would still avert a lot of deaths, right? So there's all of these very complicated things going on. But at the moment, I would say the, the, the basic message is that, that Omicron is probably the, the Fastest growing variant we've seen, probably the most transmissible. And it's coming at a very difficult time in Europe where we already have Delta waves. And there's a lot of debate at the moment, for instance, about whether it's milder or not. And that's again one of these things where people fall into these dichotomies. Um, just because it's milder doesn't mean it's, it's, it's not dangerous. And we don't know that it's milder yet. But even if it were, the truth is, if you get this much disease compressed in such a short time, Then, you know, and you already have full hospitals in a lot of places in Europe, and there's not really anything that's benign. Someone pointed out on Twitter, just imagine, you know, if everybody got the flu, you know, in the same week in winter, um, you know, that would crash a lot of systems on on our planet. And, And that's kind of the kind of worst case scenario we're looking at in terms of just a lot of people in a very short time being infected.
0: Yeah, so there's the systemic risks, right, to our hospital systems, and we for sure, you know, have those risks here in Ontario and across Canada. There's also risks to the, uh, Testing capacity. Uh, we have experienced this before with, with COVID uh, here in Ontario, where our ability to keep up uh, with testing, you know, caused us to have an unclear data picture and 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 all of the downstream risks that that, that come with that. But there is also an acute personal risk, e- even if we're vaccinated. If if I understand, you know, so that the early science, you know, coming out about uh, Omicron. Um, doubly vaccinated people can still be uh, vectors uh, can can pass on the virus to to other people do do I understand that correctly
1: Yeah I think we have to distinguish between what we know fairly well and what we don't know yet right um, certainly the early data all points to the virus omicron variant being able to evade some immunity but I think we have to be very careful about distinguishing Um, protection from infection, protection from symptomatic disease, and protection from severe disease. Um, I would argue that the data that's come in so far does make it pretty clear that we're going to see a big drop in protection from infection. So you're right, we, we are going to see a lot of people probably be vectors even though they are vaccinated. That seems pretty clear from the data. I think the big question mark is really will will the um, protection hold up against uh, severe disease and how well will it hold up? And I'm much more hopeful there.
0: So it's almost to the day, the one year anniversary uh, of vaccines rolling out uh, here in Canada and many other parts of the world uh, as well. And a lot of people are noting it's a bittersweet anniversary. Um, How are you thinking about the arrival of Omicron in the context of uh, the pandemic?
1: Oof, that's a, a big question. Um, you know, I I just finished writing a piece for science because um, last year, around this time, science named, named the vaccines against COVID-19 uh, the breakthrough of the year, right? We do that every year that we kind of choose something and and I just wrote a piece for Science, kind of looking at the last year and how we've how we've lo- used these amazing tools in in the last year, and and I think that's the way that I look at Omicron is really that all the all the gaps that we've allowed um, you know to to persist over the last year, all the little things where we didn't push harder to reach everybody with vaccines to roll them out more equitably across the globe to try and have more manufacturing capacity even than what we had. I think all of those gaps are kind of now the ones that Omicron is exploiting. I mean, we would be looking at a very different picture if um, you know, if all the most vulnerable people in the world, for instance, um, were vaccinated. Of course, even then, this would be complicated. I mean, we can see in Denmark, which has a huge vac- vaccination rate, we can see that even there, this is... Going to lead to a lot of problems, but we we could certainly be in a much better position at this time i think and and it goes back to what's been the problem in this pandemic again and again that that really as soon as it lets up a little bit, people let down their guards it's I, I said once on Twitter I think that you know we always talk about this cycle of panic and neglect, and what we normally mean is you know a health crisis comes and then everybody panics and then uh, you know, and then once it's gone, people forget about it. I feel like now we're in a cycle of panic and neglect within the same pandemic. I mean, literally, in summer everybody starts behaving as if there wasn't a problem, and then in winter we're surprised that the virus comes back and, and the things that we you know haven't done um, create problems. Yes,
0: it, it's a real challenge to try and think about this, the pandemic challenge in the best way possible. You know, in the beginning, I think we talked about, you know, getting back to normal. And then we were like, okay, well, this pandemic has now lasted long enough that um, we shouldn't really be thinking about normal. We, we've we changed. And, and some of these changes have been good and some of them ha- have been bad, but but we're probably never going to go back to, to what was uh, exactly. So then some people are like, no, we're going to build back Better, we're going to chase better. We can we can learn some of the hard lessons of this pandemic and and try and invest in a in a world that 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 is even better than than the one we had prior to to the arrival of, of this virus. And there's a part of me while while I love long term goal setting and what 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 that allows us, you know, we can make better long term decisions against that goal. There's a part of me that's. I fear it because I just keep thinking we're, we keep looking past the virus when really, mm, this is a pretty wily contagion. And I think we just kind of have to keep our focus there until we get to a place where, where truly we have low level endemic levels of this virus. I, I think, I think we fall a little bit of a little bit of a victim of, of just wanting to get past it and, and not maybe doing all the work we need to do to get there.
1: Yeah, I, I really struggle with that as well. I think, um, you know, so often in this pandemic, there are things where I feel like, okay, wow, this really exposes a really big problem and we need to really, you know, talk about it and think about it. And then I'm like, okay, so one day when the pandemic is over, we should all, you know, get back to this and talk about it and think about it. And and I think I'm just realizing that, that that's just not going to happen. I mean, um, you know, by the time this is over, people are just going to want to, move on and forget about it. I think many of them. So I think, you know, there's really no way around talking about some of these issues now. And and that I think that goes towards this idea of building back better. Um, it's, it's, it's just too much to do at the moment. I think, I mean, you know, it's that, that sense that I get from a lot of scientists and that I sometimes feel as a journalist is that it's just, it's just too much. It's just impossible um to keep track of everything and do everything we should be doing so i've kind of gone over to just trying to address some of these things you know when they come up and just try to point them out and talk about them um i think i think there has to be on the political level there has to be a sense of okay this has exposed weaknesses that we need to address but i worry that that in the end, we're not going to address them or we're not going to address the right ones or we're not going to address them in the right way. I, I keep going back to this thing that I think uh, the, the the novelist, Arundhati Roy, uh, wrote this piece in the Financial Times very early in the pandemic, and I'm going to butcher this, but she said something along the lines of, you know, every pandemic is a portal that we walk through and you can kind of try to, you know, drag the dead carcasses of your old ideas through with you or you can try to step through lightly and and i think maybe maybe that's a way of looking at it um, you know not so much being concerned about how to build back better but rather letting go of baggage um, that that this pandemic has maybe maybe shown is you know is holding us back
0: that's a that's a great way of thinking about it in terms of a, as a, as a portal so when we think about walking through the portal are boosters part of what's going to get us through the the portal are the, are they long term part of the solution or are they uh, a short term solution that's just buying us time
1: yeah I'm gonna go with I don't know <laughs> which <laughs> is uh, my, my go to answer these days I so I think boosters are really complicated because um, obviously we have seen that immunity wanes we have seen that boosters help push it up again um and the question of course is okay you know does a third you know does one booster kind of a third dose does that then give you longer lasting immunity or does that wane at the same pace again and then you need another booster and another booster so there are some questions about that i think that just scientifically we haven't really answered yet the other thing is that we keep um we keep looking here at um protection from symptomatic disease. And I don't think we really know how much protection from severe disease wanes yet. That seems to hold up pretty well. And so we get into this issue of of, of equity as well, because what we're doing at the moment is that we're protecting some of the best protected people even more. while there's still a lot of people in the world who have absolutely no protection. Um, So if if we think of these vaccines, and I think we we probably made a lot of mistakes in how we communicated about these vaccines early on. I mean, when I say we, partly, you know, that that's more an issue for the um, for for health services and, and and scientists and public health experts. But I, I do think if we had thought of these vaccines from early on as really being about avoiding the worst outcomes from an infection then maybe you know the waning and the reinfections wouldn't have been quite such a big deal and we could have concentrated a little bit more on trying to get that level of protection to everyone in the world or to those who most need it. Um, but, but instead, I think there was a sense, particularly in the richer countries, that these vaccines were our ticket out of the pandemic because if we gave them to enough people, if we vaccinated enough people, then maybe we'd reach a herd immunity threshold and, and the virus would stop circulating. And I think in retrospect, it was quite clear that, you know, fairly early on, that, that probably wasn't going to happen. But that's led to, to this, this two-track pandemic at the moment in a way that we're seeing. It's partly about the fact that we don't want to do the other things that we have to do to maybe drive down transmission. You know, WHO has consistently said it's not vaccines alone, it's vaccines plus But I think there was a sense, um, you know, that maybe we can do it just with the vaccines. And that's led to a lot of problems, I think.
0: Yes. So thank you for bringing up uh, the matter of vaccine equity. So boosters are about to roll out in Ontario uh, starting in January for anyone more than 18 years of age should we be feeling guilty here in Ontario to take advantage of this eligibility? Like, like how should we be thinking about this as, as, you know, humans on this planet who suddenly, you know, have this opportunity to take a vaccine uh, or a third dose of a vaccine?
1: I, you know, I don't think we should feel guilty. I think we should feel privileged and we should be aware of where that privilege comes from. Um I I wouldn't want anybody who's offered a vaccine to, you know, to forego it because they think it's unfair. I don't think that that's really how vaccine equity works. Um, I think once the vaccine, you know, is there, most of the mistakes have been made already. I think what we need is a concerted push to get governments to think about these kinds of Uh, issues in a different way. I mean, what happened with COVAX, um, so the, the initiative that the WHO and others set up to try and make the vaccine rollout a bit more equitable, what happened there was really that the rich countries were promising money to COVAX, but were at the same time, or before they were actually giving the money, they were buying up the vaccine supplies. And so in the end, COVAX had the money to buy vaccines, but there just wasn't any vaccine to buy anymore. And I think it's it's at that level you know when we talk about vaccines and how we think about them, you know how how do we deal with something that's really a global public good, how do we deal with that that's that's where we should be focusing and so I think you know get that vaccine if it's offered to you and and maybe do your part to to advocate for for things um you know going differently on on the level of your government for instance i I don't think that, that guilt is really, um, you know, it, it, I mean, in the end, it also doesn't help anyone. I think I'm a bit more solution-oriented, maybe, but I, I just think you know, you can do some good by getting that vaccine uh, yourself and your community, and at the same time, I think you know, realize that privilege and 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 do something about it.
0: I think that's a fantastic response. Um so thank you for for that. So uh in addition to actually living up to to kind of Covax uh commitments, um what what is needed? What are your thoughts on on what is needed to improve uh vaccine equity around the world?
1: I struggle with that because it's um because there are so many levels to it. I, I sat down with Bill Gates a few weeks ago when he was in Berlin and, and, you know, and I asked him, shouldn't we have, you know, waived the patent rights, for instance? I mean, the, um, that has been on the table for more than a year at the World Trade Organization. Um, and, and he was adamant that that wouldn't have changed anything. And I, I sometimes feel maybe that is one of those, those old ideas um, that we need to think about letting go of this idea that you, know, that, that you can solve everything um, or, the, or that innovation in the, in the private market is the biggest thing that we need to protect. I mean, I think there are situations where, where things are different. Um, in the end, I'm not sure how we really get there because, of course, there are always going to be governments that have an interest in keeping you know, the power structures the way they are. And and there are you know, very powerful corporate interests, of course. I mean, you know, there are billions of dollars being made with these vaccines. I I think there must be a way to do it better, and I do have some hope that if we set something like Covax up now for the next pandemic, if it's there when the next pandemic starts, that maybe the situation is a little bit different. I think it was always difficult to to build that ship while you're while you're. At sea, and and so you you had these you know these difficulties really in in, in building the structure, and then the vaccine is already um, already bought up. So I think there might be there might be some way of getting governments to agree to to do it differently next time. Of course, that doesn't mean that that that's going to happen. I think really in the long run, the one thing that's really going to change the picture is just to build up the capacity. In a lot of places, for them to manufacture their own vaccine. I mean, we did see what happened in India, for instance, when India was going through its terrible wave, and and it was producing a lot of the AstraZeneca vaccine that was um, that was supposed to go to Covax, and the government decided that they wouldn't export any of that because they needed it themselves. And so, you know, I don't think you can ever rule that out. And one of the suggestions that Jeremy Farr, for instance, the head of the Wellcome Trust, has made is to put more vaccine um, factories in in small countries with small populations like you know Rwanda or Finland, because they they will be able to satisfy their own needs very fast and then maybe that already takes care of something. I think of it more in a regional sense. I think we just need the capacity in Europe in Africa in South America, in Asia, and then you know these I think you can it's more likely that countries in one region are going to get together and, and and be able to to decide how to share those vaccines, but really, we need to build up the capacity around the world and there's there are some encouraging signs that that we actually do have the ability to build that capacity. I just think it's going to take longer sadly than than this pandemic
0: Yes, I think so and and you know uh, if there's um one lesson of this pandemic that's probably not going to change, it's when we think about uh, supply chain issues, um, it's not just the vaccine, right? It's the syringes and and the way it needs to be transported. Um, and of course, you know, manufacturing capacity is huge, but there's also, you know, discrete um, – uh ingredients to the vaccine that as soon as we ramp up manufacture, we need to make sure that 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 they're also available. So um yeah. it's uh it, it it's not that I don't think um thinking about how we create science isn't important and 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 you know it's a very difficult question to answer about whether capital markets are the perfect solution for for producing these innovations, but it's way more complicated. Than just IP or no IP.
1: I, I agree. And, you know, when this, when this topic came up in the beginning, I, I was actually fairly skeptical. I always felt like the IP should probably waive. It probably wouldn't do much of a difference, but at least that would be one tiny roadblock that's out of the way and we could concentrate on stuff that's maybe more important. But given how long this pandemic has gone on, I'm I'm not so sure anymore. But but certainly it's it is about much, much more than just that. And um yeah, and, and I think this is an extraordinary situation. Um, let's hope that we don't get into a similar situation again, you know, after this pandemic ends very soon. But to be honest, uh, if you look at the, the, the drivers of Zoonotic Spillover and, and just what we're seeing, um, we are likely to get into it again. And so it is worth thinking about.
0: Absolutely. Now, I also want to talk to you about what you've heard and learned about therapeutics, because uh, I've always thought, you know, a big part of the picture for sure is vaccines, but it's also, you know, a potential for, you know, if you get COVID and, and you're not worried about it being fatal because there's a great, treatment (laughs) available to, to, uh, remove that, that possibility of a dire outcome. That's also really great. I mean, we don't want to get sick. We don't, we don't want to transmit the virus, but, but, but if we know there's a great therapy waiting for us, if, if that does happen, that's also a really important game changer. And we do have some of these therapies available today, but do we understand, uh, how the Omicron variant impacts those yet?
1: Yeah, so I, I, I agree with you that therapies are really important and I think they've sometimes not gotten the attention they deserve in the pandemic. Um, I think the, the basic problem with that has always been if you get people who are hospitalized and already quite sick, then a lot of drugs don't do much. If you have drugs that can you know, keep people from progressing to severe disease, Then um, if you give it early, then of course you can do more, but then you have to give it to a lot of people because you're not sure which ones of those are going to progress, right? So that's kind of always been the difficulty there. We have very good um, monoclonal antibody therapies now. Um, So there's different ones. And sadly, those are the ones that, that Omicron is really impacting a lot. So the preliminary data that we've seen is that that really a lot of the treatments that have been used so far are almost almost useless now. And that's simply because if you think about it, a monoclonal antibody is usually one or two very specific antibodies. So they bind to a very specific site on the virus. And in a variant like Omicron, which has a lot of mutations, which, which has changed a lot, there's a high likelihood that that, that particular site has changed. And, and that's just what we see. It has just, through its mutations, it's knocked out a lot of the monoclonal antibody therapies that were being used. Um, and they had really good efficacy. I mean, some of them had more than you know, 80% reduction in your risk of progressing um, to, to severe disease. So, so that's a real concern. And, and then on the other hand, we have antivirals. The picture is still complicated.
0: Healthcare workers are our front line of defense, but health journalists play such a critically important communication role as we move through uh, the pandemic. and um, you know, as, as a journalist, how do you feel your profession has held up uh, under the, the weight of this pandemic? And is there anyone who you might recommend, in addition to yourself, uh, for, for folks to follow uh, here in Canada to, to get a sense of what's happening with the virus
1: globally? It, it's kind of hard to judge. I mean, one of the... One of the first casualties of these two years of pandemic was, you know, reading a lot. So I'm just not (laughs) managing. I mean, reading a lot, that's not scientific preprints, really, um, or government reports. Um, There are a few journalists that I uh, trust a lot. Helen Branswell is certainly top of the list. Um, and, And it's really reporters who've already covered infectious diseases. I mean, science journalists is still a very broad area in a way, but there are a few of us that have covered infectious diseases for a long time. My colleague John Cohen at at, uh, Science has covered HIV for for decades. Um, I have a colleague here in Berlin, Gretchen Vogel, also at Science. Um, There's Jung Calloway at Nature, Amy Maxman at Nature, um, Andre Picard, uh, in in Canada, so there are quite a few people I think who are really trying to keep up with this. It is impossible to keep up with all the aspects of it. Like, I mean, like your question about therapies. There, you know, there were phases of this pandemic when I was writing about therapies, and all I knew was COVID nineteen therapies. At the moment, it's all Omicron. Like you you have to you know um, you have to kind of concentrate on certain aspects of the pandemic. It's it's just become too big. But if you ask about the profession as a whole. I think it's. I think science journalism, you know, has had uh, kind of a moment to shine, and I think it's largely actually come through in a way. But, but of course, you know, science journalism isn't really the question. I mean, the question is always journalism as a whole, right? I mean, there's also a lot of science journalists who work in newsrooms where you know they might be trying to do the right thing, but they're just you know. I always call us the nerds in the newsroom. I mean, they're just one person and and often not the most powerful in the newsroom. So I think that 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 is something, again, that that we kind of, you know, that we should be talking about, but we never really have the time to sit down and think about how we organize newsrooms and how we integrate the the, kind of the expertise of certain journalists into teams. I think the New York Times has sometimes done that very well. Um, You know, they've teamed up Really good science journalists, with really good other reporters, sometimes, um, but but as a whole, I still think that that science journalism is giving me the the least headache in a way in this pandemic. It's it's much more um, just the sheer amount of information that's bad information that's out there, the misinformation, the disinformation, um, and and of course, you know, we're not the gatekeepers that maybe journalists used to be, so it's just we're contending with all of this bad information and there's this saying that you know you can put all that nonsense in one sentence but it takes you know a lot of sentences to debunk it and i think that's really something that that we're struggling with i mean just the sheer amount of bad information you can't really counter it point by point it's it's just impossible and and so i think i think much more about how we structure our information ecosystem i mean at the moment it's really structured by you know algorithms designed by a few companies to maximize engagement and not veracity for instance of information and so i think like a lot of the problems in this pandemic it, it comes down in the end to systemic questions um they they don't make for very sexy stories often but they are the really crucial parts i think and and that's the stuff we have to change if we want you know, if we want the quality of information to change, I mean you can train the best science journalists and put more good science journalists in more media outlets, but that's not going to change the overall picture that 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 you know arrives in people's um, social media feed i think
0: yes um you know we've had all of these problems, but for sure the pandemic has brought them into to relief right um and uh, there just aren't any simple solutions. Sometimes, you know, and maybe just to bring the conversation a little bit more full circle, I think that's why we so rapidly fell in love with, with vaccines. It, it just seemed like you know uh, a, a much more simple solution to something. It was just you know grossly complex.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. I think we love these, and you know, I I, I know that from myself. It's it's very easy to you know. To fall for these easy answers and and, and put your hope in them, um, and then I think partly what we're seeing at the moment is what happens when that hope then is, is, is turns to disappointment, and that creates all kinds of other problems. So um, I think I think we probably should have communicated much more carefully about that, or thought more about that early on. But um, but it is what it is at the moment, and you know there are going to be other vaccines. There's going to be second generation vaccines. Hopefully, one day there'll be you know a pan coronavirus vaccine that protects us against a lot of different coronaviruses, all of them. Um, So, I mean, the science doesn't stop here. And I was talking um, to someone at COVAX a few days ago, and he told me that really these vaccines for him were always kind of the the immediate band-aid. They were like the first generation vaccines to reduce deaths. But um clearly they're not they not the end of the road, and maybe you know maybe at the end of next year you'll have another conversation about the excitement of a better new vaccine being rolled out i I don't think that's um that's impossible
0: mm, I think that's right, I think that's right you're you're living in berlin and and one of the you know great. Passages, I guess, in, in politics um, is the stepping down of uh, Angela Merkel as, as chancellor. You know, I was reading this this piece that that argued her her civility was perhaps her greatest legacy. And when I finished reading it, I was like, hmm. Is that a backhanded compliment? Is that, you know, a little bit passive aggressive or or, or is that right? So I, I knew I was going to be speaking with you. So I want to ask you, uh, as someone living in Germany who who watched the transition of power, uh, what, what do you think uh, of Merkel's leadership and what might her legacy be?
1: It's a really interesting thought. I, I think it's, um, I can see that there's some truth in that. I um. You know, I mean, a lot of the criticism of Angela Merkel here in Germany has always been that she, you know, she gives people that kind of feeling that um, that the country is in safe hands and they can turn away and that by that she's basically actually getting people to tune out of politics in a way. Um, I always found that a little bit weird. I, I do think... Um, I mean, she is the first female chancellor we've had in Germany, and and her style, I think, is also marked by the fact that she is not, you know, one of those uh, little testosterone-driven um, political machines. She she just has a different style that that I think um, really really helped Germany in a lot of ways, and really helped her, you know, um, I think have influence sometimes in um, also in international negotiations, but. To me, to me, if, I mean, it, it's interesting because if you look across the globe, also you do get the feeling that the countries that are being um, run by women are generally doing better in this pandemic. I mean, that's a very, you know, that's one data point. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how, how well it stands up to a critical analysis, but it just, I do think there's something in these hyper-polarized times um, to be said for, for governing in a way that, that, doesn't deepen those divides, and I think if if Germany had been you know governed for the last sixteen years by by someone more like Gerhard Schröder, um, that maybe we'd be even more polarized. And and so I yeah I I do think that that we we need much more civility actually in politics. I do think that that a lot of what people decry these days is you know is, is really about norms that that have been broken, that, that aren't really, you know, laws. They're just norms that used to be there. And I, and I think that they probably helped us um, structure conversations a little bit differently. So, I mean, again, in the end, of course, in our social media driven age, that that's, that's hard to do, I think, but she certainly um, managed that um, I'll be honest. I've never voted for her. She's not. <laughs> um, she's not. Um, you know. She's um, the Conservative Party isn't necessarily who I would vote for. But I've always felt well represented by her. Um, I mean, you know, I because I work for an American magazine. I've met a lot of um Americans over the last years and you know sometimes the conversations would start with them apologizing for Trump. Um I you know I I certainly never had the feeling um that someone needed to apologize for Angela Merkel. That 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 at least um
0: is something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um I you know so I'm a lawyer by training and and you know people will often talk about the justice system, uh, the criminal justice system as a as, as a you know, uh, it's not the greatest system, but it's the best one one we have, and and it's because it's so adversarial that that, that we know it sometimes um, produces results that we don't like, just to put it simply. Um, but 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 we kind of agree that it that is the best way to to go about things. But then to kind of see that translated into politics, this like very adversarial approach to to governing and to trying to get things done, you're like. Guys, nobody thinks it's a great system for for justice. Why are we now porting it over to 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 our political systems to to try and generate good policy outcomes for for a broad range of people? It, it kind of, you know, it, may, it it makes you, you shake your head. Um, and I I've always taken comfort in in Merkel's leadership because, you know, the thing that that kind of haunts a political watcher is is that you think, oh well, you know, if the system encourages this behavior you know, it may not be possible for for a leader to to break out of it. But I think I think he can point to the example of of Angela Merkel and say whether whether you like her policies or or not. um, she didn't use polarization as as a tool and that the system isn't so um, inescapable that it's your only choice as a political leader in today's age.
1: Yeah, and I find it interesting because she has become the the measuring stick uh, in Germany, really, um, for you know, for chancellor. So, um, in mean, the new chancellor Olaf Scholz from the Social Democratic Party, um, th- th- there's kind of a wide consensus that the reason he won was that people and and he ran pretty unashamedly, you know, as the person most like Angela Merkel in a way, um, which 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 was really interesting to see. He even had a. You know, a poster that that basically, I mean, in Germany, there's a different word for a female chancellor and a male chancellor, and the the poster was basically saying he can do female chancellor. That so <laughs> there's you know, um, th- there's just this this sense that that Germans really really like that style, and it's very unassuming. Um, I do get some of the criticism about it, you know, maybe turning. People off because it's you know I mean there, there's there are moments when you have to I think engage with people and and maybe speak emotionally but but I do also feel that certainly um, a few years ago when 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 we had the discussions about a lot of refugees um, coming to Europe she she did manage to do that a little bit more and she found her voice maybe there and certainly in the pandemic she as a as a trained scientist you could tell that that she was passionate about some of these things.
0: Well, thank you for, for for your reflections. Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask. So you, you too are are a trained scientist. In addition to being a journalist, has the pandemic changed how you think about risk?
1: Has the pandemic changed how I think about risk? That's a good question. I've never really thought about that. I I mean, you know, as a science journalist, I've written so much about uncertainty and risk, and, and I think I have a you know fairly good sense of how I think about it. I think what's changed is how I think how society deals with it when risk is unequally distributed. I think what we've seen in this pandemic is the problem when there are, which was just a recurring problem, of course, but when there are certain people who are very vulnerable and at a high risk, and you are asking other people who either feel they are at lower risk or really are at a lower risk to forego certain things or do something for them it's it's really a question about um you know societal coherence i think a sense of 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 community in a way and and i think the, the the differentials in in the risk with this disease according to age and other things have really really shown how um how brittle that is in a way um i think that's that's what's changed the most and I think you know when I, if I ever get a chance, I mean, one of the things I really want to think about is is what I think I've learned about society and how to, you know, how we can do better. Um, I've seen a lot of things that clearly, you know, we need to do better, but it's so much harder to to know how to do better. Um, and and I think you know, in the end, also. That's, that 's that's a question for, for people who maybe don 't have a background in molecular biomedicine but in you know, sociology and, and psychology and, and other sciences
0: well kai i 've been super grateful for your journalism through, throughout the pandemic, and I really appreciate you making time to speak with me today and i 'm sure all of our listeners will. You know, probably feel a bit more grounded in, into how to meet uh, the challenges of this particular time. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. Really was a pleasure.
0: Hi there. This is our last episode of At Risk for the year 2021. And I want to thank you all for tuning in and for giving me the opportunity to have these conversations. Your feedback is welcome and appreciated. So please rate and review the show on iTunes. We'll be back in January with a new episode. Until then, these holidays will still be different and maybe even more anxious than the last. Please stay safe. And remember, there's little risk in being kind to one another.
1: Happy Holidays.